2: From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we're going through a lot these days with the pandemic, processing the deaths of loved ones, trying to make ends meet because our finances took a turn. or are dealing with being cooped up too long. And the last thing on our lists, at least for some, is to be vulnerable and wade into open, honest conversations with others about what we're going through. But Anna Sale, host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, says that's exactly when we need to. We'll learn more when she joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Anna Sale's first marriage was unraveling, what ultimately helped her find a sense of clarity was talking to other people about the choices they'd made when they felt lost. This planted the seeds for what would later become Sale's popular podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, known for having honest conversations about taboo topics. But having those difficult conversations in real life can be a lot trickier than between two strangers on a podcast, says Sale in her new book, Let's talk about hard things. But, she says, that should not stop us from trying. And a Sale, welcome back to Forum. Thanks, Mina. I'm so glad to be here. And congratulations on your first book, which goes Thank on you. sale today. That's today. very exciting. Thank Yay. you. Uh, well, first, I don't think you give yourself enough credit for how hard it really is to get strangers to open up to you on a podcast, which, of course, <laughs> you are uniquely talented at doing. Thank you. But I get what you mean, though, about it being easier on a podcast than with someone you're really close to,
3: because there's more at stake, right? There's more to lose (laughs) if it goes badly. Yes, absolutely. The stakes are quite different. And also, your control of your emotions is quite different. You know, when the stakes are higher, it's easier to kind of lose your pacing, speed up, have defensiveness and anger, get in the way of – having the kind of conversation that you maybe intended to have. Um, So this book is my sort of exploration of, you know, how to create the conditions to have the most successful exchange of, of communication. when you're talking about something tough and vulnerable and also about like, looking straight at the hard thing and letting yourself off the hook for what they have to solve these hard conversations. I think a lot of our hard conversations are hard because we go in with an expectation that is totally unrealistic. Like we can fix someone's grief or we can make material differences inconsequential if we're talking about money, kind of like talk them away. Um, And you can't. So what is a good way to think about the value
2: of these kinds of conversations, or maybe sort of an interim expectation in terms of what they can really achieve?
3: I think like this book is an exploration of, of, of five big hard things that most of us encounter in different ways in our life, death, sex, money, family, tensions, hard conversations within family, and also hard conversations about identity and, and what, what I really try to explore is like if you go in with a a sense of awareness about what is hard about each of these, specifically about each of these five big things, um, but and instead go in with a spirit of curiosity about how the person you're experience you're talking to is experiencing something, maybe it's grief or loss, maybe it's you know a misunderstanding or a sense of distance within your family, that sense of curiosity. What that does achieve is it pulls you out of that place of isolation and stigma, which Mm. is like can be a compounding difficulty on top of something that's already hard and a really, really compounding difficulty. You know, I, I you'd mentioned the end of my first marriage. And when I think back on that time, you know, so much of the pain was shame and not knowing who to talk to about, you know, how else, who, someone else who this had, who'd gone through this. And as a young person, I was 30 when that marriage ended and just finding those people that I could compare notes with, it was really healing and just kind of let me put my shoulders down a little bit and just go, yeah, this is tough. Huh? And they go, yep, it's tough. (laughs) You know, I, I really think you're
2: illustrating one of the key sort of arguments that you're making about why we should, engage in these conversations rather than sort of compartmentalizing and, and just kind of making it work. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it really does make us feel less alone. And, and you mentioned isolation, but, but that connective tissue, I think, is the word that you use.
3: Yeah, connective tissue. And like what that does, that connective tissue, when you're tending to it, when you're building it, like that's what our relationships are made of. You know, like you're not just helping yourself out in that moment. You're building and reinforcing something important about that relationship that you can you can keep returning to each other to compare notes about what's tough, to ask each other for help. Um, and, and that makes life more rich and full.
2: And you also talk about, as you said, going into the conversation with an awareness of why it's hard. And so one of the things that I want to explore with you uh, because I don't think I have done it that much on forum yet, is really exploring why conversations about money are so hard. We'll get to mm-hmm. I'll try to get to as many as I can in the book when you talk about death, sex, family, identity, and so on. But let, let's just talk about why initially, what you've learned about why money conversations are hard to begin with.
3: Oh, my goodness. Mina, you went to the hardest one.
2: For, <laughs>
4: sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, okay, first of all, uh, we have such little kind of concrete public vocabulary around money, you know, like we don't even have words. Mm. So when you go into a conversation about money, even in the most intimate settings, like when I'm talking with my husband about whether or not we should buy a rug, you know, like I might be thinking about money in this way of like, let's what do we have in our bank account? But blah, 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 blah. and he's thinking of it as like, what are the things that we invest in for our own comfort to create this house together? So you use the same words and you're meaning different things, um, and. And uh, this woman named Amanda Clayman, who's a financial therapist, um, says money is both, obviously, a tool and money is also a symbol. And so when you're talking about money, you're talking about both this very concrete material tool that enables you to spend, save, uh, borrow, etc. And it's also wrapped up in all sorts of things around your cultural background, your beliefs about, you know, earning and money and, and how interdependence and independence. And Mm -hmm. when you don't kind of practice talking about money, all of those really big emotional things kind of get just like, you know, they're just in the background and they're, and they're causing really strong emotions. But because we don't practice like, oh, oh, I see why it's important to you to like send this money to your family member, like in your family, you have a much more sort of open, you know, exchanging of money, you help each other out, you invest together, you know, whereas in my family, that's not something we've done. It's all about like proving that you can stand on your own two feet, Mm -hmm. you know, like opening up those conversations um, can help you learn a lot about why the money conversations are hard when you put words to them
2: yes i love this line that you had where you say the best place to start any money conversation is to admit that money is about much more than money yeah (laughs) and and it's true as you were saying that people have different people really don't even know what it means or it means so many different things to different people as you were saying for some people it means that it's it's how you sort of stack up against others or if you have a lot of money or not it was because of some some personal characteristic or failing of yours as opposed to structural forces that may have played a major role in whether you were able to um to make it or or whether or not you're struggling along the other thing that i think is really was really interesting is that money is something that you pointed to as part of the reason that you were able to move on from your first marriage because you finally realized that agreeing on what money is um revealed that you and your partner actually didn't have the same plan for your lives.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's like you start arguing about whether or not you're going to go out to dinner and spend that money. And then you realize like, Oh my God, we want totally different things. Like um, that, that, that was like a really long process because to me, you know, it was it was really hard because it's like, oh, are we so such a cliche that we're like arguing about money and that's why our marriage is ending? Like it felt so like small kind of and mundane. Like, why can't we figure this out? And then as we you know, did the work, we read the books, we went to the couples counseling and then finally we had a conversation where my ex just, just spit out, he's like, we don't want the same things. Like, I want to travel the world and make art and, and be a filmmaker and you want a house and kids. We I don't want that. And it was shattering to just have that be sort of blurted out finally, this like big conflict that we were sort of arguing around the edges of. And that was a really hard conversation. And and for a long time i thought of that as like a failed conversation because <sighs> we didn't figure it out we didn't come back together and as i worked on this book it's been 10 more than 10 years like thinking about like oh actually that's when we finally got to what we needed to say to one another like yes. we didn't want the same things and and once we sort of allowed that to be the outcome of talking about all of these you know, battles that we've been having, it was easier to move forward. You're almost redefining
2: what connection means. We were talking about how one of the reasons to engage in these hard conversations is to feel more connected. And it doesn't necessarily mean that after you have that conversation, you are going to be physically more connected or the marriage is going to be saved, but you are going to be connected in terms of Of a truth, a shared truth or shared realization, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, you know, I actually was really helped by, um, years ago, I saw a Stanford business professor giving a talk, and she was talking about negotiation. And she was talking about the idea of, you know, a successful negotiation being when you get to yes. And she was arguing like, no, no, no. That is not a successful. That is not the only definition of a successful negotiation. A successful negotiation is when you both come to the table and you say, "I'm willing to give up this," and I'm willing in order to have this. And the other person says similarly, and you realize, like, okay, we can make a deal. It's also a success. You have negotiated if, in the end, you decide, like, actually, this isn't the right. This isn't the right deal, and you walk away. Um, And and that's how I like to think of hard conversations. It's like trying you're you're going in with this other person to really try to understand where they're coming from with a sense of curiosity as much as you can even though even when it's really sad and emotional and angry um and and understanding what they're saying and then seeing like as I'm listening to this how does this match up with what I think and want and need um and and you're you're discovering that about each other you're having this exchange and it might be that in the end there's not resolution but you've you've sort of given you you've you've given the relationship the respect of trying to really understand what's happening in between you two
2: hmm. We're talking about how to have difficult conversations with Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, and podcast host of NPR's Death, Sex, and Money. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are some conversations you've had that you want to tell us about? What hard conversations have you avoided? What are your questions about how to have them with Anna Sale? 866-733-6786, the number, and we'll get to your calls soon.
3: (laughs) Stay with us.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As the host of NPR's podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, Anna Sale isn't afraid to talk about difficult topics and more with complete strangers. But as she notes in her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, she says it's downright terrifying to discuss the things that are the most important to us with the people who are most important to us. But Sale says that is exactly what we should do. So tell us, what are your questions for Anna Sale about how to have these hard conversations? What are some hard conversations that you've had that you want to tell us about or the hard conversations you haven't had <laughs> that you also want to tell us about. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So I want to talk with you a little bit now, Anna, about death, in part because this is something that is so much a part of our lives. So many of us are processing the deaths of loved ones. And one of the Mm -hmm. things that I really loved in your book was when you talked to a therapist who said skillful communication about death starts with an awareness that nothing you say is going to fix it or make it go away. And that really is something that you've been saying throughout, even at the very beginning of this conversation. But can you talk about why that's so important in the context of death?
3: Yeah. Oh, because I think it's just goes against all of our most um, caring—you know, understandable—caring impulses. Uh, we when we when we want to comfort someone who is in deep grief, we want to help lift the pain. Um, and the therapist you mentioned, her name is Megan Devine, and and she has a book out that's called "It's Okay That You're Not Okay," and she writes about kind of coming to this awareness of how to how to instead try to meet someone and validate the suffering and the pain that they're going through rather than trying to problem solve it. And she, she had the personal experience of, um, she lost her partner, uh, when he was 39, they were hiking together and he was swept away and drowned in Mm -hmm. a river. So a sudden death, a shattering tragedy. And she told me, um, this quote that has really stuck with me. She said, people feel really helpless in the face of someone else's pain and they want to make that pain go away so they can stop feeling so helpless. Mm. And and she really felt that in that way of like, well-meaning people saying things like, oh, you know, you're, you're young, you'll find someone else, you know, or even let me know if I can do anything for you. Yes. And And for her, she's like, let me just, let's tease out the logic of let me know if I can do anything for you, which is something, you know, I have said people say, "Me it's, too. it's a thing that you say. And, and she said, you know, here I was, it took every ounce of energy I had to just wake up every morning and realize how my reality was completely upside down. And then when I heard this from someone, I had to think, oh, what would be helpful for me right now? who is the person that I should ask for that? And then how do I get over that weird feeling of not wanting to ask for help and then ask, you know? Um, and she compared that to uh, someone who, you know, just like offers to, I'm coming by and I'm going to walk the dog, you know, a couple of times a week, just, just these small ways or, or I'm going to text you and you don't have to talk to me. I just want to keep checking in with you because I'm worried about you. And will you just text me back an asterisk and let me know? That you're just having quiet time because it is a real worry when someone you know is in deep suffering and loss. You wanna hear from them and know that they're, they're, they're. At least, you know, eating and and taking care of themselves and waking up in the morning. And I thought that was a really graceful sort of tip. Like, so she did. She did that with a friend. She would just text back an asterisk sometimes when she didn't have the energy to talk. She didn't want to feel like she had to perform, that she was somehow like doing okay with her grief. But she could tell her friend, I'm here. I'm here. You know?
2: Yeah. Well, let me go to call her Caroline in Gilroy. Hi, Caroline.
6: Hey, I hope you can hear me okay. I'm on my um, car phone.
2: Uh, Yeah, we can make you out. Go right ahead. (laughs)
6: Okay, Okay, great. So uh, this topic is on death. My husband died almost 10 years ago now, um, relatively young. But something I was surprised about was finding out uh, that people really flinch when you say the words, Dead, died, death, died, death—it's like you're saying a dirty word. Huh? You yeah. Know, and I find I had to start using the euphemisms. I hate like "passed away" or "my late husband," which I really hate because he was always very punctual. Um, <laughs> <laughs> death, but um, it, it's just yeah. weird to me that death is really that odd a topic, and you know, just so taboo. And, um, and I wondered if you had anything to say about that.
2: Caroline, thank. The Thank you for that. I, I think your connection is getting a little bit um more staticky. But I, I did hear what you were saying about just people flinch with the word death. And Anna Sale, this reminds me so much about the story that you tell in the book of your conversation with a woman uh, named Sue about her friend Shelly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because in that conversation it sounded like there was a real reckoning with the need to talk about death and call it what it is and and describe it for what it was
3: yeah i love this story well i first want to say i'm I'm sorry for the loss of your husband um and and one tip that i i recently heard and i just love it when i've done it it's so neat when someone you know who you're just meeting mentions someone who's died in their life whether a partner or, or a child or a sibling um when you say like, oh, what was their name, and then and then to see what happens when you ask that to the person, their face kind of lights up, and they're they're given an opportunity to sort of tell you about who they lost and who they were and remember them together. Yes. Um, it's just a beautiful thing that happens, um, and and. Uh, so that's that's a nice tip to take with you um i I met Sue as a good as a very good friend of mine, and I started talking with her about death because I am very good friends with her mother, who is named Anne, and Anne is now in her late eighties um, and I interviewed Anne about aging because I found I got to know Anne when she was already in her eighties, and I would find that we would hang out and then I would go home and I would have this like. <gasps> I I hope she knows how much I care about her and love her because I know I don't have unlimited time with her. And so as part of writing this book, I sat down with Anne and I just sort of said like, what's it like to be in your mid eighties? Like, how are you thinking about, you know, um, decline and, and, you know, uh, the way, what's comfortable for you um, when someone offers an arm, when you're walking next to you, like, I, it was a really nice conversation Um that I wanted to somehow like make me feel not not worried that I was going to lose my friend Anne. And of course, one day she will die. Um, but we did have that time together to, for me to say, I don't want to lose you. I love you so much. I treasure this friendship. Um, and that's what conversation can do. Uh, but after I had that conversation, I was telling Sue about it. And Sue, her daughter, she sort of like has this joke that she just like, she's just like will not will not engage with the question of her parents passing away. It's too painful. And she sort of like covered her ears and sort of went la, 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 la like that's what I do when this comes up. And I was like, okay, we don't have to talk about that. Um, but then she told me at the same lunch when we were having this conversation, she was like, actually, I was just at this funeral of my friend Shelly and her friend Shelly is was a woman uh, who got melanoma and pretty quickly um, realized it was terminal. And she made the choice for herself that it was comfortable to sort of document her decline um, to tell people about you know the medical the medical interventions and what it did to her body and take pictures and share it and and Shelley described being at the funeral where um it was her choice like to, you know, when they have a, a slideshow of images, you know, there were pictures of Shelly and her most vibrant self, you know, cheering on the sidelines of a football game. You know, there were pictures of her as a kid. And then there were also pictures of her, you know, kind of very fragile after chemo w- with her hair gone. And she's holding her dog's face in her hands, like kissing her dog. And it it showed the whole arc. Um, and, and that was a choice that Shelly made. And. And it was um, something I talked to her brother about it because he was very up close and with her while she was declining, and and he said kind of as a family that they they wanted to share that whole process with people because if they had not seen her when she was sick, if they remembered her as this you know healthy, vibrant you know woman, um, that it, the shock of it might be just like too much to absorb. Um, and his her brother Mike said, you know, I. I saw it. I saw what this cancer did to her. And I wanted to help people see what she went through and the way that she faced it open-eyed and um, kind of bringing her family and friends along with her at, towards the end. Um, and something Shelly Shelley would say to her brother towards the very end, she would just say, like, is there anything else you need to know? Like, they They really went into it. They looked at it together and it was sad and scary and didn't make any sense, but they were with it with each other till the very end. I think it's
2: so interesting that you talk about how we want to make other people feel better about death, like we want to solve it for them or fix it, as you were saying. But that actually, and one of the ways we do it is really by avoiding talking about what it means and how it takes from us, as Caroline was talking about with the euphemisms and the late for husband and so on, right? But that what really what really does help us as part of the grieving process or avoid the sense that that our grieving process is incomplete in some ways, is to be able to really name it and talk about it. Um, One of the things you made me think about when I was reading is, I'm actually a very private person and I don't normally share things, but I did decide to put out on social media that my aunt had passed away. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always admired about people who do this was I was like, oh, they're so brave and clear-eyed, like they know they need others to display care so they're announcing this on social. And what I realized when I did my own was that that is absolutely not why I was putting it out on social, right? I wasn't asking for displays of care. What I needed people to know was that she existed. Like there was this mm. sense of like, I need you to know she she was out there and lived. And so I think just sort of the assumptions we make, it's so it's so interesting, the assumptions I made before I was in the same situation.
3: Yeah, I remember seeing that Mina. I'm re- I'm really sorry for your loss and she was she was far away. You weren't able to be with family to to memorialize her together as a family, right?
2: Right. And I wonder if that need, which is something that is shared a lot by people through the pandemic because they aren't able to be there for those those rituals was in part was because it sort of almost didn't feel real to me without it.
3: Yeah. Do you yeah. want to tell us her name? <laughs> her
2: name was Hae-young. Hae-young oh. Kim Hae-young Kim. Young Kim. Um, but thank you. And I do get the power of that too. It's so interesting. We had a caller last Friday who shared a memory about um, his mother and the kind of food that she would make for him. And um, yeah, asking him what her name was really did bring out quite, quite a touching moment.
3: Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, thank you. And let
2: me go to caller Nancy in Northern California next. Hi, Nancy. <laughs>
3: Hi.
1: Um yeah, I have a very
2: particular dilemma.
1: I am um one of six siblings and on when my mother was older and before she died, she divulged to me that she had been uh sexually assaulted by her own father.
2: Mm.
1: And not just once, but throughout her whole life. And her at, that she was at home and She also told me that she hadn't told anybody else but my father. And I am the youngest of of my siblings. It was hard to hold that information. I have shared it with my sisters, but I have three brothers that I have not shared that information with. And I have no idea how to have that conversation with them. Yeah. That's
3: that's very, I mean, I think, um, is your mother still living?
1: No, my mother has passed away, but yeah. I've also just, I've avoided my brothers for years because of, I hold this information.
3: Yeah. Yeah. First, I want to say that's really hard. Um, I, I think when we, when we learn new information that causes us to sort of have to rewrite the entire narrative of our family um, and what we understand about how our families, you know, our family's history. It's, it's, I just want to say, like, of course, it's deeply unmooring. Um, you know, I think, I think it's like it's it's thinking about like what, you know, if I tell one brother or if I tell all my brothers, like what will happen is I am, I am going to like disrupt what they think the story of my family is. But the trade-off for that is I won't feel like I'm holding something back from them. We will have a more honest understanding. Like And, and, and it sounds like it, it's interesting that you say it's made you feel distant from your brothers because you're you, you all holding this alone. Um, or you're holding this and, and they don't know. Um, so I, I think it, it's, it's kind of like if you do choose to disclose it's um, kind of some general advice that I have for starting any hard conversation is just to begin before you you go into the conversation, think about like, what do I want to say to the person I'm talking to about why I want to talk about this? So you have those words at the ready. So if you do, you know, sitting at a kitchen, kitchen table with one of your brothers, or you call up one of your brothers, you can say like, Hey, I I have something important I need to talk to you about. Is now a good time? Um, And when you, sort of signal that like the person who you know isn't expecting maybe a hard conversation they they hear you saying like we need to move into a different mode like is now a good can you do this right now or should we schedule a different time um and if they say one of them says i'm okay like let's talk and then you kind of begin with like i have some i have something that's upsetting to share with you and it's about our mother and i have held this and i haven't known how to tell you or whether to tell you but i've decided that i think you should know because otherwise you you have an incomplete picture uh, you know if if that's what you choose um and and just really try to say you know this is pre- prepare the person you're talking to to hear what's coming like the the uns- you are going to tell him something that is going to be shattering um and that you're doing it for these reasons that you have thought a lot about um of course if you decide like I'm not sure that these relationships with my brothers can hold that. Um, then it's a different set of choices, which is to say, like, uh, there's some things that I'm, I, some parts of me and some things that I won't share with my brothers going forward because it's, I can't, I don't feel safe uh, or I don't feel like it's appropriate for our relationship for me to disclose this. So I think it's it's that kind of thinking about whether whether to disclose first before you think about how to do it.
7: Well,
2: Nancy, I want to thank you for that call and for sharing that with us. One of the things that I'm thinking about, Anna Sale, and in listening to the advice that you gave Nancy was also about a situation when it may be reversed where you are suspecting that there is something that somebody wants to share with you or needs to share with you, um, and you want to be able to set the conditions to be able to have that kind of conversation. What have you found as somebody who's often pulling that from people that is so key in that kind of scenario?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's like, it's kind of like modeling the kind of conversation you wanna have. You know, when I, it's 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 often about like I, sometimes I think in in social situations or, or if it's like a small talk catch up you know kind of thing. I, I just in the last few weeks I have found when I'm like oh man you know what I have found is really helpful. I'm doing these like walks around my neighborhood and talking to my therapist. Like I'm just taking her for a walk, and and when you just are when you're the person in the phone conversation to say that first. Then the other person's like, "Oh, I can't tell you how hard this time has been." You know, mm. instead of just being like, "You know, how are you? How are you? How are you? you?" know, doing the thing. Um, if you just create that opening, then it's people will walk through um, if they need to talk. Uh, and 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 so think about like, how can I be that friend? How can I be that friend that that they know that I'm I'm a person that they can kind of go a little bit more nuanced and complicated with.
2: We're talking about how to have those meaningful but hard conversations with Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, Known for Death, Sex "Of Money, the NPR podcast. We'll have more with her after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
7: We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
2: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Anna Sale about her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. Sale is the podcast host of NPR's Death, Sex, and Money. And you, our listeners, are telling us about hard conversations you've had, how they went, conversations that you've avoided, and you're asking questions of Anna Sale about how to have those hard conversations. 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786 is the number if you want to join the conversation. Our email address, forum at KQED.org and we're at KQED forum on Twitter and Facebook. And let me go to caller Sarah in Santa Rosa next. Hi, Sarah.
4: Hi. How are you guys? How are you? Good. Thank you for taking my phone call. Yeah. What's on your mind, Sarah? Um, My son, uh, Patrick, he's uh, three turning four this year. Um, He doesn't know his father. um, And that's partially the reason it's my choice. Um, and I'm still not sure about my choice. Um, and I was wondering, how do I have that conversation with him? What age is it appropriate to bring it up? He um, teases that, you know, my sister's boyfriend, sometimes will call him dad. He'll call him dad and and that. But I don't know what age is appropriate to have a conversation with him. It is involving some um, adult stuff. Um, the conversation will be about adult stuff. My, um, how is this? Uh, the his father has like a criminal background. Um, and so I don't really know when, what to tell him how I should tell him at what age. Um, and it eats at me like every day, like what should I do? Yeah. You know?
3: Yeah. Sarah, thanks. Yeah. Thank, Thank you me, for me, this okay. question. And and I have to say, like I, 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 um, I think there are more appropriate people. I would do some Googling about like child psychological development and things like that, just to kind of, um, just sort of like get a sense. I, I'm not an expert on that, but what I will say is, um, you know, you don't, you said you don't know, you haven't decided whether and how to to tell your son who his father is. So you're in that space of have not, you don't know what to do. So that's okay. You don't know yet. Um, but you, 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 you do have a family with him. So one one way to like just kind of begin the conversation maybe, and maybe you've already done this. I mean, he, he's certainly noticed. I have, a, I have a four-year-old is, you know, say like, here's who's in our family. Here's, here's who loves you. And here, you know, this person, this person, this person, this person. This is what our family looks like. You know what is this person's? You know your friend at preschool. What does his family look like? Just like introducing the ideas that family can look different ways, um, in different you know in different families, um, and and then you're you sort of can come to that question of you know uh, it seems like there's you're not just asking uh, what what does my son need to understand about who his father is, but also like how would I manage my son then wanting to have a relationship with with his father. those are big things that you're you'll you'll sort of like learn what what you need to disclose also based on what your son is asking you, you know, as mm-hmm. he gets older. um I think that listening to your son about what he needs and and wants to know um is is an important thing. I think it's something I write about in the book, even with adults of grown children um, being reminded that, it's really important to listen and not just talk and try to guide and and keep parenting. Um, That can be really important for building adult relationships between kids and and parents. Um, But, but good luck to you. I would, I would, my, what I would say is just, just begin by talking about um, who his family is, who's in his life right now that loves him and is keeping him safe and is his family. um, And, and then to sort of uh, let it unfold um, based on what you hear from him back.
4: Yeah, I will actually, I will look up a child psychologist. That's a good idea. Thank you very much.: Sarah, enjoy you. your uh, conversation. Thank well- you..
2: Well, really appreciate you calling in and sharing that. And I think, Anna, also your answer to Sarah addresses a question that we also got from Grace about how you fold younger families into conversations about hard things. Um, this listener, Gary, wants to know how you talk with someone who will abandon fact and truth in order to win an argument. I've had this problem in two previous relationships. It was intimidating and overwhelming, impossible to reach any kind of resolution unless I simply gave up. Uh, yeah, what what Gary is saying about this notion of abandoning fact and truth really has so many meanings. I feel like in this age,
3: this yes, time. And, and I think it's really. Um, I think the question is like, do is there another reason to figure out how to have a relationship on different terms with that person? You know, there are some relationships where it's like, oh, something as basic as like, you don't agree the sky is blue and. I I am under a blue sky every single day and it affects my life, you know, or something um, more fundamental to, to, to your identity. Like I don't believe that, that the way you're living your life is uh, moral and I reject you. And I, and, and, and I, so then that's a relationship that you can decide this isn't a healthy relationship for me to have. I don't need this person in my life. There are other situations though I mean, all of us probably have had a, a friend or a family member in these last few years where um, there are things, there are basic facts on which we cannot meet eye to eye, whether it's about politics, whether it's about the pandemic. Um, and then it's about thinking about, huh, well, is there another reason we need, like, can we talk about other things that aren't about politics in a way that still feels like I'm not um, dishonoring myself or disrespecting myself. Um, and I, I tell a story in the book, um, it was a woman named Pam Daglian who's a life coach actually in San Francisco. And we. she reached out, I, I was sort of looking for stories of people who had figured out how to have successful family relationships where you talk, uh, where there are really key, deep uh, value differences and political differences. And she told me about her relationship with her stepfather, George, um, who is now in his late 80s, and they had long had tension. They hadn't gotten along basically their entire relationship. Um, and then Pam's mother developed d- dementia. And in 2016, um, George moved Pam's mother into a, an assisted living facility, and Pam was still visiting. And all of a sudden, she's staying alone in George's house, a house, you know, in, in, in a relationship that had always previously been mediated by her mother. And it's in the middle of the 2016 election, and they have very different politics. Um, George is a conservative Baptist in Upper Michigan. Pam identifies as a as a political liberal, um, and there's a lot on which they don't agree. And But what happened in that relationship, it started, Pam noticed that George turned off Fox News when she was in the House, and it was something that he usually always had playing in the House. And she saw that gesture and appreciated it. And they started watching Family Feud together because Family Feud is something we can all watch together. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then finally, George just said to her what, he said, you know, our relationship is more important to me than politics. So, so that, that's, he, he just said it. Yeah. And what hearing that did was it allowed them to sort of begin actually talking about politics. They could be curious about each other you know George would ask Pam about sanctuary cities and why she thought they were okay and Pam would ask him you know what his views were you know why he had these views on immigration and they but they they had established that there was something else tying them together yeah um and and it really they they became very important supports to each other as Pam's mother continued to decline and and through her death last summer um and and so I think that that's a situation where you can put up Guardrails, and you can say, "This is an important relationship to me," and and I, I, I don't agree with all of these ways in which you are, um, you know, we don't agree on basic facts here. Um, but a critical difference there is that George was also willing to join in conversation with Pam. You know, when you're when you're have trying to have that kind of back and forth with someone who instead always wants to win the argument is just going to try to sort of be a freight train over any, any feelings that you have. That doesn't sound like a relationship. There's that, that can be, you, you just have to decide like, uh, is there something else? Is there a reason to put up with this
2: yes. or not? Well, well, let me go to Jean in San Francisco. I think Jean has something sort of related to this. Jean, join us.
0: Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I, I wanted to ask your guest, uh, What role she thinks morality plays in the discussion about the uh, five difficult uh, subjects uh, to discuss. I mean, it's personal morality that, you know, it's the impetus for the action. Right. And for the behavior. So if you're talking about money, for example, if you send fifty dollars to the Trump campaign or you send fifty dollars to the Buttigieg uh, uh, campaign, uh, you don 't really want to talk about it seems like uh the whole conversation here is about treating the symptoms instead of the disease and 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 I know that in the past i 'll just say one briefly um you know churches and synagogues and temples and so forth uh used to um uh, you know play this role you know the meaning community would would play this role sort of fallen by the wayside but i w- I was raised uh, a jewish and uh you know, I read very early, um, you know, for, for, for the stranger within your gates, there shall be one law uh, for you and for the stranger within your gates. So that sort of formed my thinking, uh, you know, you, w- whether you think the Torah is a valid document or, you know, just mythology, it doesn't really matter. It formed my thinking about the immigration discussion. So where, where are you getting your moral, um, you know, yeah. impetus for whatever? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Jean, so, thanks. Anna? I think that's a really important question. And actually, it's like, I think that that's like, that's the conversation I want to have with you. I want to, I want to understand like, oh, like, tell me more about this, like where you got your clarity on right and wrong and what were the inputs and, and I want to know about that, you know, um, and and certainly I I'm sure that there's you look at somebody's choices or or political beliefs and you say like that is not aligned with my very clear sense of of right and wrong, um, and and I think I guess I take the position like um, I I just take the position of like if there if there's a way if there's a way to have a conversation where where each party can can listen even while they're disagreeing and can bring, try to uh, bestow a sense of dignity on the person they're talking to, then you're going to uncover the places where some of that morality overlaps, where it diverges, you know, and, and, and be having a respectful exchange. You know, I, I'm not advocating for sort of like, um, in any way like uh, flattening differences and saying like oh what you're saying is 100% valid and what i'm saying is 100% valid and they just don't overlap with no 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 in these conversations you are like churning up and and comparing really deep things um, mm-hmm. and and to be sort of curious about those differences like that's that's what my chapter about identity is about is about like oh like how do we have a conversation where we can better understand how you move through the world and how the world responds to you based on some aspect of your identity. And I'll tell you what I've noticed and what I haven't noticed, because for example, you know, I'm a, a white woman, like what I haven't noticed, like, and and just sort of like create a more complicated, nuanced understanding of each other's experiences.
2: Well, I want to thank Jean for that because I think too one of the key things is knowing, like when you talk about not flattening things, right? And I think one of the key things is also knowing what you're really talking about and what you're not really talking about. So, for example, you had mentioned the word earlier, politics, right? And and Jean was bringing up political examples. But there are so many things that we're really talking about that politics isn't really the right word to describe it. Because by saying, for example, politics is more important to me than our, or our relationship is more important to me than politics, what is happening in terms of the public discourse that has involved our political leaders um, is is a lot more sometimes than just politics, right? It, it's it's yeah. race, it's dignity, it's so many things that are core to, to people's, to, to who people are. But it gets sort of you know, pulled into this word that that can often be batted down to something not as meaningful as it really is.
3: Yeah. Or just like, oh, I understand which side of this I'm on. And if you're on the other side, what do we have to say to each other? Exactly. Particularly right now.
2: Puts you into these pre, uh, these contrived camps or categories. And then that also stifles it. Well, well, Jean, thanks for for bringing that into the conversation. And I do want to remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me see if I can get one last call in here. Uh, maybe Jane in Montana. Hi, Jane. Hello. Our daughter
6: is in a profession in healthcare and understands the public health side of being immunized and has started the process. Her fiance is dead dead against inoculations and their wedding in September is a little iffy because Mm. they've both kind of dug in their heels and they say, I need to be inoculated, but I don't because I work at home and it's going to be a wedding with people hugging and so forth. And I'm just wondering how we can negotiate, help them figure this out because it's kind of, it's become a black and white issue.
2: Mm.
3: Oh, oh, that's boy, so that's hard. hard.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: That is so hard. I mean, uh, I mean, there's a, a couple of questions I have is, is, you know, what is, what is your daughter kind of expressing to you that she needs from you? And, and like, what is she trying to figure out? Like it, it comes down to um, like them figuring out how to have the conversation about like what matters, what matters more, you know, it, it doesn't matter more that um, you don't, I, you don't feel forced to get a vaccine and, and this is making me feel not heard, not respected, uncomfortable about asking our family to gather and also makes me question, you know, how we move through the world and whether it's aligned. Um, you know, it, it sounds like that's a very, that's uncovering a very fundamental uh, impasse. And it sounds like um, that's a conversation between them um, and, and, you figuring out how you can support your daughter and um, where are her lines? You know, what is the line for her?
2: Well, Jane, thank you. For the call and you know one of the things as I listen to our listeners share stories for example Michelle writes my husband and I have been in therapy to find connection and intimacy. He just told me that he's not sure he actually loved me early on in our relationship. He thinks it may have just been infatuation or sexual attraction. I've been in therapy for sexual trauma and trust issues and one reason I fell in love with my husband was the safety and security I felt. I believed he was different from the other men that hurt me in the past. I'm so angry about this current revelation. Mm. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but you know, stories like that and stories about, for example, Lisa saying, I find myself waiting for the right time to have hard conversations, conditions never seem right, years have gone by and I'm still waiting. I feel like through so much of reading your book and in the thinking that you've done about the best ways to have conversations, you have unlocked a lot of new insights into into kind of the human condition <laughs> like wow. who, who we are what 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 drives us what needs we have how we're how we're hurt where our sensitivities are tender places as you say and we just have a minute left so i i was wondering as we reflect on the things that we've heard today and the kinds of things that people were willing to share what you feel like you have really learned through this process of thinking about it through the medium of conversation.
3: Yeah. I mean, I just would say that specifically to those last two comments, like those sound like really hard things. And, and I, I have found like when you um, hear other people's stories of having, of going through these kinds of like huge collisions and really hard things. um, It's, it is a comfort. And it also is is strengthening. It allows you to see like, oh, that person went through a really hard thing in their relationship and they realized like, this is what was important to them for the future. And this is how they made those one step at a time, made those moves forward. Um, So I think it's just about, um, you're not by yourself. You're not by yourself as you go through this stuff. Um, And that's what I hope like picking up this book, it's not just like a how-to guide. It's also like, oh, look at what all these people have gone through, and they're on the other side, you know? Um, And that can be just a really important um, sense of relief. You're not on your own as you're you're trudging through this hard stuff.
2: Well, that's definitely what you and our listeners have, have been for me. So my thanks to you, Anna Sale. My thanks to our producer, Grace One, for this. And my thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to Forum.